Welcome to Conversations with Caroline. On this season, we're going to talk about conversations that matter. I have asked each of my guests to bring a conversation to the show that they wish more people were talking about. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, throw in your AirPods for your daily walk, grab some friends to listen in. I'm your host, Caroline. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed and written a review. If you haven't had a chance to do so, please do so wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow along on Instagram at Conversations with Caroline for all the latest updates. And be sure to share this episode with someone. CWC fam, get ready. Today's show has been a long time in the making, and I am so excited for you to hear my friend and apologetic Santo talk to us all about the faith and why Jesus is the answer. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm pumped. I'm excited too. I really do hope that we have several conversations over the seasons to come about all things faith, all things God. Um, So today we'll just sort of be intro to who you are um, and a few questions and we'll see where it goes. So let's jump in and learn about who you are. Sweet. Well, my name is Santo. It's Italian. It's not Irish. And uh, it means saint or holy. So it's like where you get San Francisco. It's the same idea. I was named after my grandfather. And it's just an Italian tradition, more of a Sicilian. I'm Sicilian, uh, all you mafia fans. And so basically, you just name your firstborn son after your father. So my father took on the tradition. And that's how I got my name. So I've been a Christian my whole life. I did the sinner's prayer when I was five years old. Um, I know that might sound odd to some people, like how could I have been so cognitive of that? Um, I just remember, well, I remember the exact time and all that. I just remember wanting to do God's will. I didn't want to please my parents. I didn't want to, it wasn't about them. It was more about, yeah, I, I want to please God. And so, of course, at five years old, the world is, I'm just learning about the world. So years later, I've never ventured away. I've had doubts, of course, but um, especially in college and undergrad, uh, I was studying philosophy and theology. I guess my moment of crisis of faith was struggling to, to prove God existed. And I, uh, I'm a kind of a person that thinks too much and it hurts my own good. But anyway, so I remember having a phone call with my father in a car one time about it. And uh, he said, well, son, you know, cause he's lived through it all. So it's just kind of one of those, oh, he's going through one of those phases. But to me, it's the biggest deal ever. Uh, and he just goes, well, Jesus is always the answer. And uh, I remember just sitting in the car and uh, going over my head and just thinking about it. And I just could never disprove the resurrection. And uh, because of that, I'm like, well, if that's true, then I guess God's true. (laughs) So then it just kind of, everything made sense to me. So in that sense, like, is Jesus the answer? Yeah. But did it take a lot of uh, struggle and time? Sure. And then even past that, of course, we all go through trials and tribulations and then it won't stop. I'm pretty confident uh, in my faith and my beliefs. And that's why I studied apologetics. Just 
basically means to give an answer to the faith. So a lot of times when people have questions about Christianity, the faith, why bad things happen to good people, that kind of stuff, it's just a... Um, a way to provide some sort of answer, maybe comfort to the hopes of uh, evangelism. So the purpose of it is to convert, not to be right, if that makes any sense. So anyway, that's the long gated version of my journey of faith and growing up. I am now a businessman. I'm in business. I'm in insurance and uh, real estate. That's me. That's Santo. I think what's so interesting about your story is that you are somebody who took what you believed and A, you like not many of us chose to be in school longer than we had to be. And you kept going to school and you kept learning. And then uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you got to travel a bit and do sort of speaking in the apologetics, speaking to people around the world about faith. Well, I was reluctantly in in school as well. (laughs) Um, I actually really did like school. Let me, because like you said, I, I got to travel all over the world. So yes, I was in England for a bit, got to evangelize in Wales and been all over the country and that sort of thing. So it has led me to travel a bit. Do you find that it's easier to talk about Christianity in other places versus here at home? Yes, I do find it easier. And I, and I think it's because a lot of people in America um, already have this idea of what Christianity is. And I mean, you could ask anybody and you say, what religion are you? A lot of people, oh, I'm a Christian. Well, we, we do. We live in a Christian um, society, but people don't really know why or what is Christianity. They just kind of think, oh, yeah, you know, it's just about this, this God and this son and sacrifice and that's it. But that's a lot deeper than that. It has a lot more to do with relationship um, and it has a lot to do with uh, will, surrendering a will. So coming from that perspective going somewhere else in the world where Christianity isn't as well known or it's it's known uh, differently. Yeah, I would say that the conversations are much deeper. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. It, because you can go there uh, regarding uh, Christ, the resurrection, um, sin, for example, because sin is a, is a very different concept. Evil um, is a very different concept in different worldviews. So uh, a lot of people are curious about what that means. I haven't traveled around the world, but what I find here in evangelism is you often find people telling you what they don't want in, in religion, specifically in Christianity, before they tell you what they do want. And so what I mean by that is people will say, I don't want your rules. I don't want your commandments. I don't want your legalism. I don't want your um, oppression. And they think it's all these things that limit you before you can even get to, okay, sure, but let's talk about the heart of the issue. Let's talk about why there's actually freedom in Christ and why we believe that to be true, as the scriptures say. And so I find most of the time when religion comes up, it's just that it's religion, it's um, legalism, it's the things that have hurt people. It's a relative who has said something offensive at a holiday and now they don't like Christianity because that (laughs) aunt claims to be a Christian, right? It's not, oh, my neighbor was so loving and kind to me. And when I got to know them, I realized that they're part of a local community that believes in Jesus as the savior. And now I'm a Christian. Unfortunately, it's more the extremists sitting around a table, limiting people. Do you agree? No, I, yeah, it seems like a lot of people know that, that one judgmental person in in the pew, (laughs) it's like, I've been a Christian my whole life, and I've met a couple of them, I mean, so, uh, which makes me uh, 
what you said earlier about people, I don't want this, I don't want that. And it's like, they're actually, they're the ones that are more religious because they're the ones that are putting the rules on everybody else and what religion should be, right? Uh, or shouldn't be, right? They're the ones with their commandments, thou shall not. So I, I, I do find that a little ironic uh, because Christianity uh, in the heart of it is, is not about do's and don'ts. It's about death and life. A big saying is, is that Christ didn't come to make bad people good. He came so the dead could live. I find that the biggest apologetics are actually in the church, not from outside. People are very high maintenance, mm. <laughs> religiously high maintenance. I also think we live in a world, you know, for all of the, I'm being facetious, wonderful things that social media has done for our lives. I think one of the negative things that it has done is it makes people feel like they know a little about a lot of things and that makes them an expert on a lot of things. And so I think what happens is somebody gets on Twitter or someone gets on Facebook or Instagram or something and they see you know a version of Christianity represented or a trail or they see a news story about Christians doing this at a protest or not doing this at a protest or speaking out about this or in a different part of the country this has happened and like they don't actually know a Christian, but then they think, well, now I know them because of this party or this group. And, and I, there's just, to me, it's so encouraging to continue to be the one and, and mission church says one at a time. It's important to have the one conversation, the one relationship at a time, introducing people to the Jesus that I know, because they're not getting that version through social media or through, you know, that one crazy person. <laughs> yeah, that version in social media they're getting is um, it's, it's like a Jerry Springer show. <laughs> yes, um, which I love. I, I love the the drama. It makes me laugh. Um, I think when you're rooted, it's okay. <laughs> For those still withering, looking, it can be detrimental. Yes, but I like to stir the pot. I think this 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 kind of delves to the the question uh, that you had for me one time about how to speak into people that have been hurt by the church. You can never judge something by its abuses. Right. Um, and you're touching on it earlier. Just usually they expound on something they really don't know enough about, which is fine. Um, it, but it does help to know what you're talking about. And so, um, you know, just because there's bad fathers out there doesn't mean fatherhood is a bad thing. In fact, we know it's not. Same thing when we, uh, you know, with democracy. Well, uh, we can look at Iraq, um, Saddam Hussein's Iraq, and it was, you know, the Iraqi Republic democracy, you know, uh, but just because it has the word democracy in it, are they even living by it? So right. there is a verse in the, in the Bible that Paul talks about the fruit of the spirit. And so when you have this fruit of the spirit, uh, that's how you know what a Christian is. Um, so Paul basically says, bite me. And find out. And so if if you don't fall in line with all of those fruits, because it's a, the fruit of the spirit. So there's a singularity there uh, are, you know, uh, love, patience, kind of like all that stuff. Well, then you're not who you say you are. And I think as a Christian, we, we need to know that as well. And of course, being a part of being a Christian is called discipleship or following Jesus. And so we have to follow his steps because we've chosen that. 
And by choosing that, that's where freedom lies. I do find that an important aspect that you cannot judge a philosophy or religion by its um, abuses. Yes. It's a logical fallacy. It really is. Yes. So I would study the claims and then, um, and then use that to truth, compare it to the truth, compare it to evidence, and then see where you are. Yes. So taking a step back, because I do want to spend the majority of our conversation under the umbrella of Christianity, but if someone is of a different faith or is still deciding and, and exploring, why does it have to be Christianity? Why can't it, it coexist with other beliefs? So this is a great question. It all revolves around truth. Now, I'm not going to get into this long dissertation about what is truth. Thank uh, you. Uh, Pilot already asked that question. But we are claiming, everybody's claiming to know something, to know the truth. You're betting on something. And so um, truth, by definition, is offensive uh, and it's exclusive. So somebody's wrong somewhere. So Jesus claims to be the truth. So that's why I think what he's saying lines up with the reality in which we live in. I find the answer to reality most believable through the Christian worldview over any other worldview. Why? Well, a lot of people, when you ask about other religions, they love to put God in the dock. So they obviously like to say, well, if there's God is all good, and he's all powerful, then how is there evil in the world? Okay, that's one question. Or why doesn't God answer prayers? If you look at it, most objections, if not all of them, don't really have to do with intellectual um, roadmaps. They all have to do with moral issues. You know, is it my body? It's my choice, for example. Uh, I was born this, you know, everything has to do with my choice. It's my, uh, you know, it's morality based. These questions typically delve in morality. Okay, so then that leaves the question, what is right and wrong? And every worldview has an answer to that question about morality. And so when you look at a very popular one, it's called karma. So you see some <clears throat> jerk, you know, he flips you off on the road and all of a sudden he gets in a car accident. How good do you feel, right? And everyone's, oh, that's karma. Karma got you, right? <laughs> so um, in that instance, yeah, it's a good feeling. Even justice was served, that little, you know, or... Uh, they were speeding and cutting everybody off. And you see that cop get them and you just, uh, justice, okay. But when we look at karma in its, in its actual perspective, it is basically somebody is deserving of something that you did from the past. So in other words, if something bad were to happen to me, that is the flow of energy or the flow of karma putting things to its natural order. So like my punishments are due to some past behavior thought, uh, action, for example, which seems right. I mean, that sounds justified, like a good metaphysical uh, justice system. The problem with that is, is, is that, and I hate to use this example, but when we put it to its logical uh, outbringing, when a child is killed or a child is tortured, 
what karma is saying is, is that that child deserved it because they are going through a punishment that was done in its previous life. Secondly, what that does to philanthropy. If I am helping somebody, somebody who's poor, like a Mother Teresa helping the, the poorest of the poor, she's hindering the, the karmic flow. So you're actually doing wrong by helping somebody in the karmic system. So that's one way of looking at a system of moral evil, of how it responds to good and evil. That's probably popular with a lot of our peers. But when you really think about it, I don't find that a sufficient solution to moral evil. I don't think it's livable. Another popular opinion is astrology. Now you hear a lot of things of uh, what's your stars or what's your, your birthright, right? So you're kind of condemned to your birth. You have no choice in the matter. You have no free will. You're born in February. So that means you're hard headed and I don't know. I don't know the stars and all that. So then what comes out of that is called manifestations, right? So the more you speak into something, you speak life into something, or it's going to happen to you, like the universe is your genie. And so this is kind of how you get like curses. And so people will curse things or people believe things about themselves that they have no choice in the matter because they were born that way. So in other words, their actions are not their fault. It's not their responsibility because they were born that way. And the only way to change that is through speaking out things into existence with, for example, spells, crystals, manifestations, that sort of thing. Those are kind of more of the extreme, but in all and end all, it's really more of the idea of that you don't really have responsibility for your own actions because that's you were born on a certain date, right? I don't find that valuable. Um, I think we have to take personal responsibility for our actions. I do believe in free will. I don't think we're um, subject to the stars in the skies, and I, uh, which goes to the next idea of atheism, that there is no moral responsibility uh, outside of the physical realm. So in other words, if there's no God, there is no um, metaphysical right or wrong. So there's no objective right and wrong, which just means that people can just get away with murder. All that I have a hard time with. I just think there's a lack of sense of justice in the world when we take those worldviews. So coming to Christ or Christianity, there is an answer to that. We're the problem. <laughs> we screwed up. We have to take responsibility for it. And unfortunately, we don't. We've tried. We've created laws, created moral laws. We still seem to fail. You see the messes we're in now. What was the answer to that? Jesus's answer was forgiveness and sacrifice. And what's interesting is, is that usually the human nature is our idea of justice is rooted a lot in revenge. Now, what do I mean by this is like we watch a movie like uh, GoldenEye, James Bond, right? And this guy's doing terrorism, he's killing people. And at the very end, he falls hundreds of feet and he doesn't die, <laughs> right? And why is that? Because the director wants us to not only punish this evil antagonist, but he wants him to suffer to his death, right? So that's a sense of revenge that we have, but that's not really justice. We have this kind of imperious idea of what justice is. But when we read scripture, we read the end in Revelation, we hear of a lion 
right? This, this king, this lion that's going to devour and destroy all evil through might and power. But what we see is a sacrificial lamb, which is quite a sight because nobody thinks a bloodied lamb is going to save humanity from itself. That's how the, the gospel presents the answer to the evil in the world is through sacrifice and forgiveness. There is a story uh, on Christmas Eve, they've made a movie about it, where there was a ceasefire between three uh, armies. And you see this, this picture of this war going on, they're all killing each other. And eventually they, they agree to a ceasefire and to bury, uh, their own, to take their soldiers and, um, and to bury them that night um, and to commemorate the birth of Christ. And so it's a depiction of what forgiveness and what the gospel, the message of peace, the Prince of Peace brings to the world. It, it ends wars um, and it brings unity amongst enemies. So that's the power of forgiveness. That's the power of sacrifice. And so that is what the Christian message offers. And no other religion offers that type of love. And that's how love is defined through a Christian lens. Well, that's the reason why I choose Christianity. <laughs> so from choosing Christianity, we're going to tackle some of those morality questions you hit on and not that we're going to have the most perfect answer, but what I hope we can come to is people who, okay, yes, I believe Jesus is the son of God. I believe he died for my sin and throws <clears throat> again. I believe in salvation. I believe in heaven, but life on earth, I still have some questions about, and we're trying to answer those questions in the most comforting way, but also in the most truthful, because one of the things that I think people misunderstand about Christianity is that oh, I'll become a Christian or I'll believe in Jesus and my life is going to get better. My life is going to be perfect is probably a better way to say that. And so I think that unfortunately it isn't going to be perfect and all the bad things in your life aren't going to magically go away or get easier and uh, new bad things may come. And so how does a Christian, how should a Christian reconcile with that brokenness that they either personally experience or they look out and see in the world and feel like, man, sometimes it feels overwhelming. To answer that, one, the word brokenness is what are we broken from mm. uh, is, is a question I think that deserves a merited answer, um, which to me goes back to the, the moral question where it all went wrong. Because if nothing's wrong, then how are you broken? So then what is broken? What needs to be put back together from what I'm hearing the question? It's not promised that we're going to live a, a life that uh, is not going to have its roadblocks. Should I be so bold and to say good? Um, and here's what I mean by that. How boring if it wasn't. Because it's like you think of that puzzle you can't solve. You work so hard at it. And eventually you figure it out. How much more sweeter is it that you accomplished it rather than if it was just so easy that you did it and what next? So there's, a, um, there's an Oxford economist named Avid Ochner. Now, before you roll your, <laughs> before you shut me off, <laughs> I'm going to explain this because it usually delves into people's personal lives and, and how they do with reward 
um, and purpose and all that. What he found was, is the more people had, the less satisfied they were. And we often see that. Usually the, the, the countries with the most wealth usually have the most unhappy people. Now, how can that be? Well, typically what happens is when you have an abundance of rewards and a lack of scarcity, you get to a point where there's no scarcity. And so there's, there's no reward to be had. And so the less scarcity you have, the less reward you have, the less meaning there is. Because what's the point? You just have everything you want. So which goes back to the question, what are we broken from? Now, if it's a material thing or a job thing, that's a lot to do with perspective. And, you know, well, what's meaningful to somebody? Um, if it has to do with losing somebody, that's a different question. And I think maybe that is more of what you're asking about. Um, when there's loss, well, that again is a moral thing. And there's a passage in scripture, a famous one, where Jesus is told that a friend of his named Lazarus is sick. And if he would go to meet him, he would heal him. Well, Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't go meet his friend and his friend dies. Later on, he does go. And it's funny, there's two sisters. The first one, Martha, comes out, meets Jesus, and she asks or tells him, if you would have been here, he would have been healed. Now, it's a very peculiar question because it has to do with God's nearness. And I think we all relate to this. It asks the question, one, does God love me? And two, does he have the power to do anything about it? Jesus responds to Martha and she, he says, your brother will rise again. And she's like, yeah, I know that when the Messiah comes and uh, the day of the resurrection, he says, lady, I am the resurrection. It's funny that in this discourse, Jesus is having like a the theological debate <laughs> or a philosophical debate about when bad things happen. But it's interesting, the question arises about nearness, God's nearness, uh, and if he could have done anything about it. And well, he answers philosophically um, that, well, yes, and he is the resurrection. Then the second sister comes, Mary. And it's funny. She says the same exact thing. If you were only here, my brother would have been healed. But this time, God, Jesus, how did he respond? He didn't respond with a theological response. <laughs> he wept with her. So I think there's two instances here that require us as Christians to look at this question of brokenness and whatnot. One, yes, where is God when you need him most? Is he near? Well, I think this passage shows that he is, but he handles it differently than what you and I would expect. And um, sometimes a theological answer is needed, a philosophical answer is needed, and sometimes somebody just needs a shoulder to cry on. And both are answers. And I think Christians need to know the discernment to know when to do either or. I think a lot of times we just want to be right and lord over people and tell them how wrong they are <laughs> when all they really need is a hug or they just need somebody to sit there and listen. And well, lastly, we do see Jesus do something about it. He does raise Lazarus from the dead. But what's another interesting thing is, is the question, what he answers is he says, your brother will rise again. And that's an even deeper response. It's a responsive relationship. That's her brother. And so the status of this person doesn't change. 
or I should say of the relationship doesn't change because that's at the end of the day, what we're crying out for, what we're losing, right? When all this brokenness happens, uh, we're losing a relationship with the father, a brother, a friend or somebody. And so that's where this brokenness comes from is that we're losing a part of not only the other person, but ourself. In fact, that's how depression uh, happens with grief. Um, because you've lost a part of yourself in that other person. And so that's how grief sets in. And so when that sets in, then depression sets in. So what is depression? Well, that's a loss of the past. And okay, I'm not going to go down that road, but that's essentially what happens. So what you're losing a sense of a relationship. And so what does God do is he comes to restore that. And he does it through his power he is the resurrection so he answers either one through theologically two emotionally just by being there weeping he has the same emotions we do he has the same cry for justice we do he cries about it and thirdly through his power and miracle through his resurrection and those are the three things that uh, really uh, boil down to what the christian faith is so when we do see brokenness there is an answer to it now its answer is in many different ways but jesus will answer it in a way that is important to you to martha it was to say that i'm the resurrection to mary it was to cry on her shoulder and to lazarus it was to raise him So, um, and I think all three answers are sufficient to us. I just don't know where we are at in that walk of life or walk of faith, but God will answer that. God will answer us if that makes sense. Yes. And I think that's so much wiser than we give it credit for that in each season and each situation allow space for God to show up as you need him to, it's not going to be the same way in every season. Um, I love that. That was a great explanation with a great, great scriptural reference. Now I'm going to use one of your favorite words, purpose. (laughs) And it certainly has uh, blown up through pandemic living. Everyone wanted to redefine their purpose and make sure that their life had purpose and myself included. I'm sure you laughed when you saw the first episode of this podcast was titled purpose, but it was true. I guess I had on a few weeks ago, she was walking out grief and she said that uh, Elizabeth Kubler Ross, who wrote the five stages of grief before she passed away, revised her work to include a sixth which she said, not only was it acceptance as a fifth stage, but really purpose as a sixth, that through extraordinary grief, people have to come out with a purpose. And that looks different for everybody else. And so that gave me a lot of comfort that having walked through uh, an abusive marriage and such a loss in my life, I think I was really struggling for now, what, what do I do with what I've walked through? And how my life looks different than where I thought it would be. And so starting this podcast, gave me tools and gave me something to do as I re-navigated and re-found myself in the world. And so the podcast has taken shape over the multiple seasons and different conversations. But I do think that this generation is searching for what do I do with my time and does my life have meaning? Actually, uh, when you said about the sixth day, that was uh, Victor Frankl uh, had the same conclusion. He wrote a very famous book called Man's Search for Meaning. 
And uh, he was in the concentration camps, uh, specifically Auschwitz. Anyway, he was a psychologist and he developed what was called logotherapy because of the concentration camps. And he could compare it on, on how some people survived and others didn't. And so he came up with the, the uh, therapy of logotherapy, which is through purpose or mean, meaning is really what it delved down to. Um, so like with loss and um, in your situation, what's instead of seeing the meaninglessness in it, you see the meaningfulness in it. And that's how people healed. To your original question about purpose, I sense a lot word being hijacked nowadays mm-hmm. and people are more worried about their passion and circumstance rather than meaning. And so the, the two kind of get conflated. And I think a lot of people are wanting to change your circumstance and they believe because they feel unhappy or whatever, they feel that chasing their passion is, is what going to give them purpose. And by doing that, there is actually a study Stanford did that said that's a very misleading and detrimental thing that people are teaching is to follow your passion. Because a few things to think about here is, is that one, to think that our passions never change. I mean, what was your passion 10 years ago? 20 years ago. Playing volleyball. Yeah. See, like, is that still your passion? I mean, if you could do that the rest of your life with volleyball, would you do that? No. Well, maybe. I mean, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> you know, I was passionate about, you know, collecting baseball cards at one point. <laughs> like, I'd go broke if I was that, you know, like, so one, I think it, it, it's very narrow minded. Yeah. It's also feelings based. True. Well, because they think, and that's another thing, like, your happiness and like being successful in life takes a lot of work. People will think that work should be easy and it's like passive income. That's like another big word for everybody. I want passive. Nothing is passive. You can't have passive income. You, if you don't work at it, you're not going to get it. It'll run out. So it's hard work. And what makes a job easy is hard work and confidence, mm-hmm. right? The more confidence you have in something, how much easier is it? Well, that just comes through working hard, long, and you do that enough times, it starts to become easy. It's like the old saying, you know, I, I worked my butt off for 10 years and all of a sudden I became an overnight success. That's why I, I, I have a lot of um, cringe with the word purpose. In retrospect, it's a good word, but it's how we define it. We shouldn't define it so selfishly, in my opinion. And if that offends somebody, okay, but I'm not trying to be, but I just would think about it because what makes somebody happy or let's just take the word love is to delight yourself in another person. There's nothing selfish about that. I mean, there's, you know, you don't like go up to your wife and say, hey, let's do your favorite meal, your favorite restaurant. Let's do what you want to do tonight. And then her turn around and say, how selfish of you? <laughs> we always do what you want, right? No, it doesn't. It just, okay, what do I mean by all this? All I'm saying is, is that, that we should live a lot. If we're going to live a life of love, well, that's to delight yourself in another person. Well, why can't that transcribe to your work life or what you do in life? If you saw work in that way as helping somebody, providing a service for somebody, well, you might think differently about it. Then the harder you work, the easier it gets. Well, then all of a sudden, what's your reward? Income. Hey, the more income you have, it's kind of a nice thing. <laughs> it makes me happy, <laughs> right? Whoever said money wouldn't make you happy. So anyway, hopefully that makes a lot more sense and I don't come across as like, purpose is stupid. I just, I see it abused. Um, and I see, I see 
I even see churches use it to, to make full-time volunteers and really suck the life out of them. And I, I don't like that either because I, I don't think God is that dependent on volunteers. I think what you said about the workplace is really kind of the nugget I wanted to take away from this point, which is your purpose can show up in the marketplace. It can show up in the stay-at-home mom life. It can show up in full-time vocational ministry, but it it's not one or the other. It's not you become a believer and now you have to work for the church or now you have to be a missionary around the world. That may be what God calls you to, but Let's say you're in corporate America. Let's say you're, you know, out in the marketplace. You can have purpose and meaning in your life in those places and trust that God has you there for a reason. Absolutely agree with that. In fact, Solomon talks about having your hand in seven different things. <laughs> you know, it doesn't hurt to, to have multiple things in the pipeline for that reason. I mean, why not be all of those? Now, I understand there's a level of time and dedication, but the more you spend doing it, the better you are at them. And uh, the better you are at them, then the better they will end up. So it's like a better you is a better them kind of a thing. I think there's a second part to this question or this word, which is not just vocationally, what is my purpose, but like that, what am I here for? And I think the most satisfying factory answer I've gotten or satisfying answer I've gotten to that is that exactly what you said that we were created and in our beliefs to love others and so that is what we're all created for is to share the love of Christ with others to make other people's worlds better in kindness and patience and love and joy right in those things and it's it isn't some I think there's a lot of New York Times bestselling books and a lot of rich people who are trying to get you to believe that if you just read this book or you just take this course or you just, you'll find it, your tightrope purpose through a keyhole down a stair, it's waiting for you. You'll just find it. Come spend the weekend with us and you'll find it. And I don't think that's how it works. I think certain people are gifted and created to do certain things. Like I said this to my last podcast guest, he was a marathon runner. And I said, look, we all have strengths and weaknesses. I'm not going to go be a top scorer in the WNBA. I'm five foot three and three quarters. It's not how God made me, but But I'm passionate about it. But I could really try. (laughs) Maybe the Globetrotters will call me one day. (laughs) I'm not though, but I'm really good at some things. And so I'm going to put my hand to those things that I'm naturally good at or gifted at and, and kind of pursue those. I think my point is that people don't have to abandon ship and think that they're going to find this one singular thing and that's going to set their world on fire. But I would encourage people that most of us should continue in the boat that we're in and, and do it with love. And we'll find a lot of purpose there. I, well, I agree, but that, I think we shared the same worldview in Christianity. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree with that. We're put on this earth for the purpose of love. And so that's how we're to live our life. You know, that's, there's another saying is whatever your hand finds to do, you do with all your heart, mind, soul, and might. I mean, and that's how you reap rewards and benefits. And so, but if you don't have the Christian worldview, then yeah, that, that answer changes. It really does. And so I'm, I'm, you know, that's for somebody to decide and another long conversation at some other point, but, but that is a Christian worldview. And um, I do see it satisfying 
to live that kind of worldview uh, for others instead of for yourself. As we exit this conversation towards an ending, what <laughs> would you say to somebody who is still curious after everything we've talked about and wants to get involved? Where where should they start? Well, they should sell all their belongings and um, move uh, to Europe and join a monastery. But if you want to uh, take a longer route, look, we believe that uh, God is a person. It's not an idea. It's not a flow. It's not a vibe. It's not an energy. It's a person. God is a person. And so if you're really curious, ask that person to reveal themselves. Start there. Say hi. That's a conversation starter. I don't know. Do you have any other icebreakers? I'm always a fan of... uh... Christianity is never meant to be done alone. Uh, It's very evident when you read the Bible that community is important to God. It was important to Jesus and many uh, look differently in many ways. And so I definitely think it's a personal relationship, but it's a communal experience. And so finding a local church, finding a small group where the Bible is being taught, um, it's important. If we want to know God, we have to know his word. And so you need to be in a place or an atmosphere where someone is teaching the Bible to you in a way that you can then apply it to your life and be transformed by the renewing of your mind and by learning his word. You can't do that always by yourself. It can feel overwhelming. Yes, there's millions of resources on the internet, but sometimes it's nice to talk to an actual person and say, Hey, I have a question. Can we go to coffee and talk about this? Or I was reading this and I didn't quite understand it. And so I would say if someone's brand new, they should look for a church in the surrounding cities, look in their network of people, see if they, if they know someone who's a believer that isn't that crazy wacko person posting all the things on Facebook and reach out to them and see if they can get you connected in the community. I wholeheartedly a hundred percent agree with that assessment because it is, it's, it's a, it's a relationship. And so a lot of times people don't know where to start. Ask for a revelation. Ask them to reveal themselves. Um, they will. If, they, if they're real, if they say who they say they are, right? And then I think that will lead to what you said um, about a church. And I think those are, and I think that is also another way of, of, of God revealing himself um, is through those methods as well. Um, there's so much to God. And like, like we talked about earlier with Lazarus, there's three ways Jesus answered and revealed himself. You know, he has many names and he revealed himself in many ways, but he is the truth. He is the way and he is the life. I'm confident in that saying. I didn't say it. He said it. And uh, through much study and following what Caroline said, I have done the same thing. So um, here I am. Thank you so much for being (laughs) on the show. It was so great to have you here. Uh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate you thinking of me. And um, I, I have a lot of fun with this. And I know I can I can go on and on and on. Uh, and that's to my own fault. But there's so much to talk about. Thank you for being patient and uh, for a wonderful show. And look forward to many more of this in the future. <laughs>